Tickets are $12 at independent bookstores or through brownpapertickets.com. Please find full information on kpfa.org. For Amy Chua, that's C-H-U-A, January 20th, a convivial evening hosted by another accomplished mother, KPFA's Amy Allison. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. It is 3 p.m. Up next is Cover to Cover Open Book. Welcome to Cover to Cover Open Book. I'm your host, Dina Serrano. Today's guests are Elaine Ellenson and Stan Yogi, co-authors of the book, Wherever There's a Fight, How Runaway Slaves, Suffragists, Immigrants, Strikers, and Poets Shaped Civil Liberties in California. This is a first account struggle book about the struggle to develop and protect rights in the Golden State. And whenever there's a fight captures the sweeping story of how freedom and equality have grown in California, from the gold rush right up to the precarious post-9-11 era. The book tells the story of the brave individuals who have stood up for their rights in the face of social hostility, physical violence, economic hardship, and political stonewalling. It connects the experience of early Chinese immigrants subjected to discriminatory laws to those of professionals who challenged McCarthyism and those of people who have fought to gain equal rights in California schools, people of color, people with disabilities, and people standing up for their religious freedom. The authors, Stan Yogi and Elaine Ellenson, bring a special focus to the World War II internment of Japanese Americans focusing on the infamous Korematsu case, which was foreshadowed by centuries of civil liberties violations and reverberates even in more recent times, regrettably, even today in the Patriot Act. And they follow the ongoing struggles for workers' rights and same-sex marriage. The state and federal constitutions spell out many liberties and rights, but it's the people who challenge prejudice and discrimination that transform those lofty ideals into practical realities. So this book, Whenever There's a Fight, paints vivid portraits of these people and brings to light their often hidden stories. Welcome, Elaine Englinson and Stan Yogi, to Open Book. I'm so glad you're here today. Welcome, Elaine. Thank you so much, Nina. It's great to be back on your show on KPFA. A pleasure to have you. And welcome, Stan Yogi. Thank you, Nina. Thank you for inviting us, and it's a delight to be back with you. Well, I'm happy you're here because today is kind of a special anniversary because it's a year later from when you first wrote the book and that you came here as your first uh, media event. That's right. The book came out in late 2009, and uh, you immediately invited us on your show. We're very happy to be on your show, and we've had a very exciting year um, doing a book tour around the state and meeting lots of great folks. And, and you've won some honors along the way. Uh, yes, we were very honored that we won the uh, gold medal from the California Book Awards um, this summer. That was really something delightful, and 
And Forward Magazine also named wherever there's a fight a bronze medal winner in their Book of Year Book of the Year awards. Well, uh, you may just win another award in March because I personally nominated you for the California uh, Humanities Award. So uh, I'm keeping my fingers crossed and hope that you have that surprise in March. Thanks Thank for you. your support, Nina. <laughs> it's a pleasure. This is really a marvelous book, and I'm so happy to be able to give listeners the opportunity to hear segments from this book. Elaine, would you want to begin? I would love to, Nina. And actually, um, my unsung heroine is, uh, as you mentioned, we, we, we talk about many of them in the book, um, has a special role this year because this year, 2011, is the centennial of the vote for uh, women's suffrage in California. It was won in, um, you know, um, 1911. So um, I'm going to read a story about one of those suffrage suffragists, an unusual one. Her name is Selena Solomons. Selena Solomons was a Jew who dedicated her life to the suffrage movement, not a common activity for women in San Francisco's small Jewish community. Though she was from a highly educated family, uh, her brother became the first cartographer of Yosemite. When her businessman father became addicted to absinthe, her mother struggled to raise the family on her own. So Solomons herself only had a high school education, yet she became a prominent writer and speaker on women's issue. Solomons wrote the sole history of the suffrage campaign in California, which is called How We Won the Vote, A True Story of the Campaign of 1911. Uh, she also wrote a play, The Girl from Colorado, or The Conversion of Anti-Suffrage, which she describes as, quote, an American votes for women comedy with a love interest. Solomons went door to door trying to summon votes for women in the campaign. She canvassed neighborhoods, both her own middle class section of town and the area south of the slot. This was the neighborhood south of Market Street, the main thoroughfare that separated the rich and poor. Cable cars ran down the middle of Market Street and the long slot through which they gripped the cable gave the rise to the terms north and south of the slot. Solomons walked precincts inhabited by poor working people, mostly German and Irish immigrants. But she found the same response in both parts of town. The men opposed suffrage and the women supported it. Solomons opened the Votes for Women Club in a loft at 315 Sutter Street, right on Union Square in downtown San Francisco. The club, festooned with suffrage yellow paper flowers and banners, attracted shop girls and clerks. Equipped with a kitchenette, it provided nutritious dishes for a nickel each. Solomons hoped that the, quote, girl who comes to eat stays to read and talk. The Votes for Women Club was popular with women workers, and a look at the menu may explain why. On a typical day, it offered four kinds of soup, oxtail, tomato bisque, chicken and clam chowder, five kinds of salad, homemade cakes, and rich milk. At the bottom of the menu was another offering. All women welcome to our rest and reading rooms. Afternoon tea served from 4 to 5 o'clock. And she invited working girls to come and she stocked uh, the library with suffrage literature and organized them to go precinct walking with her. And Election Day 1911 was a watershed. The vote was extremely close. In San Francisco, the early editions of both the Chronicle and the Examiner declared suffrage had lost. 
Male voters in both San Francisco and Alameda counties had voted against granting women the vote, and the conservative papers assumed that male voters outside the cities would do the same. In the final tally, however, suffrage won by 3,587 votes. It was a bare 2% margin, but it was a vote that changed history. On the back page of Selena Solomon's booklet about the campaign is a list of materials that could be purchased from the Votes for Women Club. She listed the flags in the national suffrage colors, blue and gold, two for nickel, that say California, the next suffrage state. And her description reads, only a few of the above left over from the California campaign. Order at once. How wonderful. Thanks to her, I vote. Me too. (laughs) Wonderful. Stan, what will you read for us? Well, uh, Nina, you referenced the Fred Korematsu case in your introduction, and I'm thrilled to tell you and your listeners that this January 30th, just a few weeks from now, the state of California is going to be observing the first ever Fred Korematsu Day of Civil Liberties and the Constitution. So what I'd like to share with you and your listeners is Fred Korematsu's story. Oh, we'd love to hear it. In 1942, 23-year-old Fred Korematsu was motivated by love, not constitutional principles, when he defied military exclusion orders that required all people of Japanese ancestry to leave their homes on the West Coast and enter government camps. The Oakland-born welder planned to marry his Italian-American fiancée and leave California. He even underwent plastic surgery to alter his appearance. On the afternoon of May 30, 1942, three weeks after the military forced Japanese Americans to leave Fred Korematsu's hometown of San Leandro, a police officer arrested the young welder as he waited on a street corner for his fiancée. Ernest Bessig, the executive director of the ACLU of Northern California, searching for a test case to challenge the exclusion orders, visited the thin, soft-spoken man in jail. Bessig did not sugarcoat the legal and political road ahead. He explained that virulent and pervasive anti-Japanese sentiment, coupled with judicial deference to wartime military decisions, made their prospects grim. Nevertheless, Korematsu agreed to serve as a plaintiff. Bessig recruited Wayne Collins, a young lawyer, to represent Korematsu. A federal judge denied Collins' motions attacking Executive Order 9066 in the exclusion order as violating the Constitution. So the only legal issue in Korematsu's September 1942 criminal trial was whether the young Nisei had violated the military's orders. The chain-smoking Collins had his client testify to prove to Judge Adolphus St. Shore the sincerity of the young man's beliefs and possibly secure a lighter sentence. Judge St. Shore was clearly impressed with Korematsu's genuineness, but he felt obliged to rule that Korematsu was guilty of violating the military's exclusion orders. St. Sure set bail at $2,500, which Bessig immediately posted. As Korematsu left the courtroom, a military police officer seized him and escorted him to the Tan Fran Assembly Center in South San Francisco, where his family was interned. After a unanimous Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the constitutionality of the military's exclusion orders against Japanese Americans, Korematsu's only option was to bring his case to the U.S. Supreme Court. And he did that 
and the U.S. Supreme Court ruled six to three against him and accepted the government's argument that there was a quote-unquote military necessity to remove the entire Japanese-American community from the West Coast. And Fred Kormatsu lived with that decision for nearly 40 years until a political science professor named Peter Irons, who was researching Fred Kormatsu's case in the National Archives in Washington, D.C., discovered evidence that during World War II, government attorneys had intentionally withheld evidence that was favorable to Japanese-Americans and instead introduced evidence that was false. So with this knowledge, Peter Irons approached Fred Korematsu and asked whether he would be willing to reopen his criminal case, and Fred Korematsu agreed. And in November of 1983, a federal judge in San Francisco vacated Fred Korematsu's criminal conviction. More than 40 dec- excuse me, more than four decades after police arrested him on a San Leandro street, Fred Korematsu was vindicated. In 1942, it was love for a woman that had compelled him to stand up for his freedom. But 40 years later, It was love for the Constitution that inspired him to ask for justice. It was late in coming, but it was satisfying. What a beautiful story. Thank you. Thank you so much, Stan Yogi, for reading that. I I also was recently at the Tanforan Shopping Center in San Francisco, and it gave me chills to hear you mention it, because suddenly I realized that I was shopping in a former detention center. For Japanese Americans, yes. Most people who shop there don't realize that it was a camp for Japanese Americans. And I just also want to mention that on January 30th, there's going to be a major Fred Kormatsu Day celebration at UC Berkeley in Wheeler Auditorium. It begins at 1 o'clock with a VIP reception, and the main program begins at 2 o'clock, and the Reverend Jesse Jackson is going to be the keynote speaker. Wonderful. So for more information, people can go to the Korematsu Institute's website, which is korematsuinstitute.org, or call 415-848-7727. Excuse me, but just tell me, how old is he today? Well, unfortunately, he passed away several years ago. Oh. But he went on to be a real champion of civil liberties, speaking around the country about his experience, especially after September 11th, to remind people about the fragility of our civil liberties, especially in times of war. And let me also add that Elaine and I are going to be reading at the Manzanar, um, the former site of the Manzanar uh, uh, internment camp. Uh, We'll be there in observance of Day of Remembrance, which uh, commemorates the anniversary of the signing of Executive Order 9066, which I mentioned in the reading I just gave. And that was the uh, presidential order that Franklin Roosevelt signed that set into motion the mass incarceration of Japanese Americans. So Elaine and I are deeply honored to be asked to read uh, in observance of Day of Remembrance. We'll be there in Manzanar February uh, 19th and February 20th. And it's especially deeply moving to me because that's where my mother and my maternal grandmother were incarcerated during World War II. Stan, that's really interesting and unfortunately that it's so needed that there be these remembrances because now our Arab American brothers and sisters are facing such a similar situation. Actually just on that line I just wanted to mention as Stan mentioned that Fred Korematsu became quite a civil liberties advocate and after 911 when there was the roundup of Arab American Muslim and South Asian men in this country he was one of the first people to speak out against it including um providing a friend of the court brief in the case challenging the unwarranted internment of people based on their race. So he really kept his principles front and center. What a marvelous man.
So you have something more to read to us, Elaine, is that right? Yes, I wanted to read um, a story about somebody who's not very well known, but actually whose um, actions with the United Farm Workers um, really changed California law. And that's Lupe Murguia. And I think this show is airing in Fresno. Is that right? That's and, right. Okay. So I hope that Lupe and Kathy Murgi are listening. I told them about it. A shout out to you, Lupe and Kathy. <laughs> okay. When the massive grape strike polarized the Central Valley in 1973, growers secured court injunctions to keep United Farm Workers pickets far from their property so that their voices could not be heard by the strike breakers working in the vineyards. The injunctions limited the number of picketers, leaving them isolated and vulnerable, especially in the early morning darkness when the crews started work, to attacks by thugs the growers had hired and the rival Teamsters Union. The UFW challenged the injunctions in court and was determined to continue picketing in the dusty country roads adjacent to the fields while their challenges were pending. Every time the UFW set up a picket line, armed law enforcement officers threatened, arrested, and hauled them off to jail, often using excessive force and shouting racial slurs at the nonviolent strikers. The arrests became so routine and the numbers so large that police bought, brought empty school buses to the fields to take arrestees to the county jail. As happened with the Wapleys decades before, each time strikers were pulled away from the lines, more volunteers took their place. Lupe Murguia was a gentle, mustachioed father of eight who had joined the union at the start of the first grape strike in 1965. A seasoned organizer, Murguia served as a picket captain directing crews of strikers in the pre-dawn hours. He recalled that one early morning at the height of the strike, he and several other picket captains were organizing in front of the Jamara Vineyards in Kern County when sheriff's deputies arrived and taunted the strikers. The deputies told Morgia they were arresting the picket captains for breaking the injunction and he was again let off the line. This time, United Farm Workers' Attorneys challenged the convictions of Murguia and five other well-known activists on the grounds that they had been unfairly singled out for prosecution. That case went all the way up to the California Supreme Court, and in 1975, Justice Matthew Tabriner ruled that if a particular defendant is chosen because of he is a black or white Jew or Catholic Irishman or Japanese United Farm Worker or Teamster that is illegal you cannot be picked out just because of who you are including being a UFW organizer the union organizers were thrilled after having their rights so brutally ignored in the vineyards and on the picket lines to be vindicated in the state's highest court UFW member Alberto Escalante remembered hearing about the ruling and thinking, though Lupe would be the first to shrug off the idea that he's ever been anything other than just another guy, many of us consider him a hero and a champion for the rights of the people. His words were prescient. The 1975 ruling was enshrined as the Morgia motion, which has become widely used in criminal defense law, California. Bravo. Thank you so much, Elaine. You just heard Elaine Ellenson and she and Stan Yogi are reading excerpts from their book, Wherever There's a Fight, 
How runaway slaves, suffragists, immigrants, strikers, and poets shaped civil liberties in California. And if you're curious how you could get hold of this book, why don't you check out www.heydaybooks. Uh, Heyday is spelled H-E-Y-D-A-Y, and it's right here in Berkeley. Stan, I think you have some more to read to us, is that right? Yes, I do. Um, we'll be observing and celebrating the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King in several days, and next month is Black History Month, so the next excerpt I'd like to read uh, commemorates and honors uh, another couple who are unsung heroes in California history who stood up for civil rights in the Golden State. In 1959, Seaborn and Jean Burks tried to buy a home on Marietta Drive in San Francisco's hilly Mariloma Heights neighborhood. Burks, a veteran and small business owner, and his wife, a sixth grade teacher, offered the advertised price of $27,950. But the tract's developer, the Poppy Construction Company, refused to sell to the couple because they were black. Two years earlier, San Francisco Giants star Willie Mays faced similar discrimination. Intervention by Mayor George Christopher and negative national press eventually convinced a white homeowner to sell his house to the slugger. After Mays and his wife moved in, a bottle containing a racist note flew through their front window. The same year that the Burks family was not allowed to purchase the Miraloma Heights home, the state legislature passed the Civil Rights Act, authored by Assemblymember Jesse Unruh, which outlawed discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, ancestry, or national origin in all business establishments. The Burks sued for damages under the new Unruh Act, but a superior court judge ruled against them. A coalition of civil rights groups organized to support the family's appeal. The state Supreme Court agreed to hear Burks versus Poppy construction. In March 1962, a unanimous court dismissed the construction company's contention that real estate transactions were exempt from the Unruh Act and ruled in the Burks' favor. Despite this victory, housing discrimination was still prevalent. Developers often told would-be African-American and Latino home buyers that a subdivision was suddenly sold out or that the bank working with the developer had frozen mortgage loans. In 1963, state lawmakers passed the Rumford Act, named for William Byram Rumford, the first African-American elected official in Northern California. The law prohibited discrimination in most privately financed housing and outlawed racial discrimination by banks, real estate brokers, and mortgage companies. In response, the California Real Estate Association and similar groups qualified an initiative, Proposition 14, amending the state constitution to repeal all fair housing laws and to forbid the state legislature from ever passing future housing discrimination laws. In November 1964, Voters passed Proposition 14 by a two-to-one margin. Two Southern California couples brought lawsuits arguing that they had been denied rentals because of race discrimination legalized by Proposition 14. In 1967, the U.S. Supreme Court invalidated Proposition 14. Justice Byron White wrote that the amendment gave constitutional authority to racial discrimination in violation of the equal protection of laws guaranteed by the federal constitution. And today, so many black families and other low-income families suffer from losing their homes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, 
I guess freedom is a constant struggle. Yes, that's one thing we learned in, in researching and writing wherever there's a fight, the, the struggle continues. Yes, and are you doing some events around Martin Luther King also? Yes, we are. We're, we're, um, uh, speaking at City College, um, they're doing a month-long, I think, um, series of events in um, February for Black History Month. And um, we will be reading their um, stand. Uh, February 24th. February 24th. This is San Francisco City College. And we'll be there 11 o'clock in the college library. And we'll be reading about the Burks case as well as other African Americans who were critical in securing civil liberties here in California as well as nationally. Isn't it something that you finished this book and it came out a year ago, but the struggles are also ongoing? Its relevance grows. Absolutely. You know, we've, um, as you mentioned, we've been doing a lot of speaking around the state. We've been all the way down in, um, you know, near the Mexican border and all the way up to Humboldt County and in libraries and bookstores. And, um, you know, almost everywhere we've gone, people in the audience, after hearing some of the stories, have you know, told us how it resonated with them, you know, that they were part of opposing HUAC or that their neighbor was interned during the Japanese-American internment or, um, you know, so so many, you know, different stories. Um, I, I remember one, if I if I can tell you, it was, it was um, you know, a lot, and it's great to be on your show, Nina, because you're a poet and, and, you know, there's a lot of poets in our book and we were actually very proud to read at City Lights, too. That was great because um, Ferlinghetti and, and his arrest, um, you know, for selling Howell is in the book. But another censorship story I was telling when we were reading up in Reading because we try to read stories that are local to the area if we have some. And there was a case in Reading where uh, Richard Brodigan's books um, had been censored by the um, local union school district. And one of the teachers, V.I. Wexner, had opposed the censorship of the Brodigan books. Um, he really wanted to teach trout fishing in America, and the school authorities told him he couldn't. So he challenged that, and eventually he won. But in the course of telling the story in our book, I mentioned that he shouldn't have been that surprised. This took place in 1978, because... Um, in 1970, the same school district had censored J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye. And a man with snowy white hair, very tall and elegant, stood up in the back of the auditorium and he said, and I was the teacher who challenged the ban on Catcher in the Rye in 1970. And it just gave us chills, you know, to meet that very brave person who we had mentioned but had no way of knowing if he was still around. You must have some highlights of the tour story, Stan. Oh, many. One that, that sticks out on my mind right now is a reading that we did in Arcata up in Humboldt County. And one of the stories that we told there took place in the area. And it involved Native peoples in Northern California who were protesting the proposed building of a logging road in that part of uh, the state. And the logging road would go directly through Native sacred grounds that Native people have been using for centuries uh, for religious purposes. And um, the case went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, which unfortunately ruled against uh, the Native community in the area. And so they faced the daunting task of trying to convince the uh, National um, Forest Service to not build the road. And ultimately they were successful um, for environmental reasons. But there was a 
a woman at the reading in Arcata who was involved in that very protest, and so she shared her experiences of, of that experience. So it was really thrilling and, and exciting to, to meet people who were on the front lines of these, these movements and struggles. And I'm sure they were very grateful that the two of you were willing to do all of the uh, more than five years of research that went into creating such a book and chronicling their struggles. People can find this book uh, at their local bookstores and libraries, and it's called Wherever There's a Fight, How Runaway Slaves, Suffragists, Immigrants, Strikers, and Poets Shaped Civil Liberties in California by Elaine Ellenson and Stan Yogi. And you can also go online and find it in the usual places. And the publisher is www.heydaybooks.com. And that's H-E-Y-D-A-Y. So thank you so much, Elaine Ellenson and Stan Yogi, for sharing this wonderful book with us. Thank you, Nina. Nina, thanks so much for having us back on your show. Um, it really means a lot to us to have your support of this book. I totally support this book. This is Nina Serrano thanking you for listening and wishing you a very happy new year. May 2011 bring us peace in our hearts, hopefully in the world. And thanks to Erica Bridgman for her very helpful board hopping. Are you tired of the Matrix? The movie? No, not the movie, but the one you're living in. If so, then hang out with your friends at The Full Circle. What's The Full Circle? Full Circle's a radio show written, produced, and directed by apprentices right here at KPFA. We'll bring you everything from the obscure to the obvious, the hidden and the blatant, as well as all things in between. So be informed. Hear about your world community every Friday night from 7 to 8 p.m. on 94.1 FM, where we'll serve you the red pill with love.